HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and uh, In the Drink comes to you live at 10 a.m. from Roberta's here in Bushwick. Um, You can listen to it on www.heritageradionetwork.org and all of our past episodes on iTunes as well as the Heritage Radio website. Uh, When I'm not here at Roberta's, you can find me at any of our restaurants, uh, Delanima, La Picho, Lartuzzi, or Anfora. And uh, I'm also really excited to uh, announce that we are working on a new restaurant at the Highline Hotel in Chelsea on 10th Avenue between 20th and 21st Street called Alta Linea. It will be an outdoor um, cafe, bar, and restaurant that uh, that focuses on Italian aperitivo-inspired drinks and, and food, lots of Campari, Aperol, Chinar. be great for, uh, for these warmer summer months. Um, okay, uh, very excited today. I have uh, someone I consider a personal friend um, in, the, in the industry, one of uh, our absolute favorite local producers of, uh, of wine, someone who's really a pioneer for sustainability and quality wine on Long Island. Um, we have Barbara Shin from Shin Vineyards here in the studio with us today. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network. I'm excited to have you here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, believe me. <laughs> uh, thank you. I, it's, it's more, I bet it's more my pleasure, but I, I'm very, really excited. You know, we've, uh, I've, I've been out um, with my girlfriend, Alyssa, with, with my wine team. We've done wine dinners with you at, at Lupicho. Uh, I just, I think that uh, the work that you're doing is just really outstanding. Um, I know that you've, you focus more on the vineyard work, which, uh, which is, uh, you do extraordinary work with that. Um, tell us, kind of set the scene for us. What is it like on the North Fork of Long Island? What are some of the great 
attributes and the challenges uh, for the for the area in which you work. It's it's in our backyard, but I feel like all of us could could know so much more about it. Well, one of the most interesting things about uh, the wine region on Long Island is that it is on the very very eastern tip of Long Island. So it stretches 90 miles from here, from Brooklyn, uh, out into the Atlantic Ocean. And so it's surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean, the Peconic Bay, and the Long Island Sound. So we're surrounded by water, which keeps us cool in the spring but warm in the fall uh, during harvest season. And, of course, it completely influences the wine that we make. Our soils are gravelly, uh, lighter loam, and so they're very well-drained and the wines that come out of our region are just so beautifully balanced by the cool climate. Uh, they have a beautiful mineral finish, both the whites and the reds, but then this just gorgeous fruit that fills up the front and the middle palate. They're just great food wines. They're, they're, they're outstanding food wines. Um, I think there are, there are wines that are expressive. They, they generally they represent a really good value for domestic wines as well, and I, you know, I think everyone appreciates that. Um, and so tell us about your, your sustainability efforts. Um, I know that you're part of an organization to work on sustainability, uh, on the, on the North Fork. What are, what are some of the main, uh, challenges that, uh, that, that represents and what are you guys doing? Well, at Shin Estate Vineyards, uh, we're really located right in the middle of the North Fork wine region in Mattituck. And when David and I started farming, uh, the wine. We started planting the vines in 2000. It was kind of recipe-driven as far as farming goes, and if anyone is a gardener or works outside, you know that you're continually answering to nature, whether it's sunny, whether it's rainy, whether it's windy, cold, or hot. And so farming, sort of by textbook, doesn't really work that well. So you start interfering with nature rather than working with nature. And it was nobody's fault. The wine region is very new. Um, it's only uh, just a little bit over 40 years old. And so our timing out there was really interesting because it was time to start asking questions and stop just reading a textbook or a workbook uh, and and um, not really working with, with nature and understanding the cycles of nature. So David and I, not being old-time farmers, were the perfect people to really ask questions. And so that's what we started to do. And of course, when you're working as farmers, uh, you meet, you, you start asking the working mm -hmm. questions. So we started thinking, well, why are weeds bad? Weeds aren't bad. Weeds are beautiful things that bloom and for, form a pollinator habitat here on our farm. Right. I think that's something that I, that I learned from you or that, that you made me think differently about weeds. And so weeds have this like derogatory term that weed must be a bad thing, but, but no, there are beneficial uh, properties to, to certain weeds. Absolutely. They're beneficial yeah. plants and um, natural meadows and other natural ecosystems that surround us all the time are where the wild creatures live and what they depend on. And so we started turning our vineyard into a natural ecosystem. And of course, it's still a farm and a farm is a man-made environment, but allowing natural ecosystem to come into our farm changed our farm. And we started really, 
really making this allowance right when we started to plant. And by 2002, 2003, 2004, our farm was a cacophony of insects and little critters living on our farm. And the whole ecosystem of the farm started to evolve. So you're not afraid of other life competing with the grapes. It's more the other life is kind of helping to support and and build the grapes and the grapes just are, are one part of that whole thing. Yeah. Well, you know, what's really interesting about growing wine is that the grapevine is a permanent crop. It's a permanent species that's there. We're not plowing our soil and trying to plant little teeny tiny carrot seeds every year. So an organic farm might have to have sort of a biological set aside where they keep a, far, a uh, field fallow for a year and that's where they can allow outside ecosystem to come in. But if you have an orchard or you have a berry bush farm, like um, raspberries or whatever, or you have a vineyard like we do, these are little trees. And so we started looking at our farm as if it is a small little woodland or a meadow with small bushes growing in it. So David and I, David Page, who is my husband and, and partner at Shin Estate Vineyards, we started allowing our farm just to become this beautiful, sprawling meadow. And we all of a sudden started seeing hundreds and hundreds of bug species. And I got nervous and I thought, what are all these bugs? And I realized that the bugs were plant-eating bugs that were coming just to eat the meadow. And wild pollinators coming in to take advantage of all of the pollen and the nectar. But what was happening was the bug-eating bugs were coming in to eat them. So I had this kind of evolving ecosystem again. And what happened was my problem bugs that were eating my vines started to disappear because the bug-eating bugs started eating them too. So I, it really kind of opened David's and my eyes to, well, there's these natural cycles that we're not paying attention to. And if you just allow these natural cycles to happen on your farm mm -hmm. and you do more stepping away, from the you know manipulation that farmers are taught to do on their farm, and you just sort of give allowance to things to start to happen, then Mother Nature starts to take care of herself. It seems like that, that might have been a scary proposition at first. You see the insects, you see bugs that, that want nothing more than to destroy your your work your whole year's worth of work and there they are and it would be so easy just to spray something to get rid of them well it's scary uh this morning <laughs> right it's scary every so, day so right now in the vineyard there's pink clover blooming up to my knees and the grasses are starting to set a seed head and there's chamomile blooming and chickweed blooming and you, know, you start thinking, well, this volunteer vegetation might be getting out of control. And it's, it's always a decision that you make of when and where and how do I intervene. And it's much more done by your gut and your instinct. You start farming by that method rather than opening up a book and, like you said, gee, how do I eradicate? It's not a matter of eradication. It's at, a matter of allowance. At what point did you feel like you could trust your gut and your instinct? Because um, I imagine at first when you didn't have that many vintages under your belt, it must have been so hard. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a trial, like I said, every day. But with each passing year, you definitely feel much more grounded and much more purposeful. And so along with our farm evolving, I think David and I evolve with every vintage. But it, 
you know, that's just a great question because by 2005, 2006, we were just making such beautiful wines that really had a sense of place. And um, the public was starting to notice that. And my grower friends were beginning to ask questions, saying, well, here's your vineyard that looks like just a, a wild meadow, yet, and, and that's sort of the exact opposite of what had been taught, yet you're making these really soulful wines. Yeah. Yeah, and as I've learned more about um, sustainability and, and uh, certainly in, in our conversations as well, I've stopped looking at perfectly manicured vineyards where all you see is a row of vines and a row of dirt and a row of vines and a row of dirt and thinking that's something of great beauty. Uh, to me, that the, the, the more variety and the more different plants and the way that the, the vineyard can coexist with nature, to me, that, that's a more beautiful thing. And, and I think that visiting your, your vineyard has certainly helped me to kind of think in that, in that way as well. Yeah, don't you go into a woods and sit down and just relax? And all of a sudden you feel so much more connected to nature. And if you can farm that way then whatever you're growing mm -hmm. on your farm is that much more connected to true nature. And so, for instance, you know, I, we use fish and seaweed and whey and even seawater and a lot of different compost on our farm to feed our soil fertility. So we're not using fertilizers on our farm. And that way our vines, roots, just seek all of this natural um, you know, natural mineralization out in the soil and they're sort of hunting and gathering, right, for their food, the way a plant should. Yeah. Wow. And something that you said to me once has, has really stuck with me, and I want to ask you more about it because and I haven't really I haven't fully grasped the concept um, because a lot of growers who I know and respect do this practice, but um, you seemed pretty uh, hardline against uh, plowing the soil, about turning over soil. Um, can you explain what, what that's all about? Well, you know, soil is a living thing. And uh, yes, it is rocks and clay and sand particles. But in between all of those little particles is air and water and then creatures that live in your soil, whether they're microbial creatures or fungal strands or earthworms or bugs. And so imagine a plow coming through that can plow 17 inches deep and all of a sudden everything's turned upside down and the microbes that want to live close to the soil surface get turned under where there's not as much oxygen and vice versa well your soil dies for a little while and eventually it corrects itself but imagine you know someone ripping off the roof of your house and then you build it back and someone rips the roof off of your house and you build it back you're in a continual state of correction rather than being able to move forward and make a beautiful home of love, right? So when you think about that in, re in regards to soil, um, something else happens when you plow, and that is you're releasing carbon into the atmosphere. And that beautiful smell of turned earth that we all love, that we're all very connected to, is carbon. And carbon is very important to just stay sequestered in the soil for many reasons that we understand now. Um, but it also has a lot to do with nutrient exchange. And so everything's wrong with plowing. Everything's wrong with, with turning the earth. And so even row croppers now that plant corn and squash can just put a little slice into a fallow field and plant their seeds there. And the stronger crops, like I said, corn and squash, can grow quite well with never having to plow a field. Wow. 
that's that's uh, really fascinating and I think a, a lot of even like growers I really respect aren't aren't thinking about it in that way but it makes just so much sense it seems so obvious when you when you say it like that um on that note, and I think you can see why, you know, Barbara's such a, an outstanding grower. But on, on that note, we're just going to have to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more uh, with Barbara Shin from Shin Vineyards, North Fork Long Island. And this one's called It's Cold and Beautiful by Magical Mistakes. We'll be right back. Michter's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost-be-damn, taste-is-everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. All right, we're back on In the Drink with Barbara Shin of Shin State Vineyards, North Fork of Long Island. Um, Barbara, I'd love to for you to tell us about um, biodynamic winemaking. It's a topic that's come up a few times on our show. Uh, certainly a lot of the wines that, that I love personally and, and on our lists uh, use biodynamic principles. Um, and I, I know that, that you're a big proponent of it. How, how does, does biodynamics work for you or what, what, what kind of principles do you use of biodynamics in your vineyard? Well, biodynamics really goes back to beautiful ancient ways of farming that we lost an entire hundred years ago and it's so interesting how human beings can forget some really basic things about growing food in just such a short time but we're getting it back and everything I just spoke about uh, in the previous uh, first segment of the show is all biodynamics about allowing self-willed creatures to live amongst perhaps your livestock or allowing self-willed volunteer vegetation to live amongst your domesticated farm plants that you're growing. So bringing outside ecosystem is, is really a main part of it. We also farm by the lunar calendar and the moon uh, affecting water, which we all recognize affects plants and it affects agriculture because 
the plant's vascular system is is water and all of the nutrients and minerals that it carries through it. So the moon in its four different phases can really affect farming. And so we can grow better wine by tapping into those subtle forces that the moon has and just taking advantage of our timing with certain things that we do in the vineyard according to what phase the moon is in. So uh, what phase is the moon in now and what does that mean for you right now in the vineyard? Uh, well, in the vineyard, um, we pay attention to one phase of the moon called the ascending and descending phase uh, a lot, and that just addresses the arc of the moon in the sky. So not a lot of people understand the moon will rise higher uh, for about 15 days during a 30-year cycle, or 30, sorry, 30-day cycle, and then when it reaches its highest arc, it starts to rise a little bit lower. So during a descending moon, there's a subtle air pressure pushing down. And during an ascending moon, there's an air pressure pulling up. So on an ascending moon, plants are going to involuntarily take minerals out of the soil because it's almost like a little vacuum that happens. So if we can harvest our fruit during a two-week period of an ascending moon, the grapes have so much more minerals in them and so much more um, food in them, which then makes for a fermentation that has more minerals, which all of the wild yeast that we use can have much more food to eat and we get better fermentations, and the wine ends up having much more nutrition in it. And talk to us about the uh, wild yeast that you use and how, how is that? Uh, I don't know of too many people on Long Island using actually using wild yeast. Well, so you know that goes back to uh, not depending on laboratories, once again, and wild yeast grow on the outside of grape skins and they originate in the soil and when the soil warms up in the spring the yeast will sporulate and float through the air and start landing on the grapes when the grapes are present on the vines and all year long I feel like I'm growing a yeast culture as much as I am growing a a vine Um, and so when it's time to harvest the fruit the uh, grapes are covered with this beautiful yeast culture and we take the fruit into the winery and just allow the spontaneous fermentation to happen. And there can be as many as 75 to 100 different winemaking yeasts on the outside Mm -hmm. of that berry. So each yeast has its own little job. Maybe some yeasts like it cooler, so they are active in the beginning of a fermentation. Other yeasts like it to be hot, so they work during the end of a fermentation. Different alcohol levels, different yeasts will kick in. When you buy a yeast and inoculate your fermentation, and you're using laboratory yeast, you buy one yeast. So think about it. Do you want to use a hundred different lovely yeasts that are going to affect the flavor of your wine and give it much more complexity? Or do you want to just use one? I mean, the chances are you're going to make a monodimensional wine that way. Yeah, And, and those hundred yeasts were from your actual soil. You know, they're, they're yeasts that taste very specific. They can't be grown anywhere else. They can't be made in a, a laboratory because they're so specific to your plot of land. Exactly. And so that's why we have to spend so much time just thinking and concentrating on the soil because that's that's our bread basket. That's yeah. sort of our primordial soup for our wine. And so getting back to the moon cycles, it's very interesting because today another cycle of the moon is called the sidereal cycle. And so today the moon is in front of a root constellation. It's in front of an earth constellation. So if I wanted to do some soil work, the next couple days would be the perfect day for me to address the soil and maybe put some compost down or if mm-hmm. I wanted to put a little bit more of the fish emulsion down um, or in the winter if I wanted to turn my compost pile, that's when you can really do great soil work. And then tuning your soil into the subtleties 
of these natural cycles that way, it just allows your soil to express itself so much more and to be tuned in with the important part of winemaking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, there's a question that I would love to ask you, something that I, that's come up uh, a few times for me with my conversations with, with producers who, uh, who grow in maybe a, a style that you do, is the use of copper sulfate in the vineyards. And I hope you don't mind talking oh, about, right. about this. Uh, because uh, copper sulfate, it, it's been used for a couple hundred years now. It's approved for... Uh, organic and biodynamic um, uh, applications, uh, especially, I think, in places that have some more uh, humidity pressure and uh, mold and mildew pressure that, that you might see uh, in Long Island. Um, it's approved for it, but there's a, the challenge that copper can stay in the vineyard uh, for a very, very long time, right? It's a, it's a heavy metal. Um, is that some, is this something that, that you guys use at all? Um, uh I, and again, I, I, every a ton of great growers uh, I know use copper, this copper mm-hmm. sulfate. Um, but people are, from what I'm here, they're trying to use, figure out ways to use less and less of it. Right. So, you know, you ask 100 growers about copper sulfate, mm-hmm. you're going to get 100 answers, wow. right? So you're going to get mine now. <laughs> I, I'm curious. And, uh, I, I, guess I, I respect the, the way that you grow and, yeah. and your opinions on this. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, David and I don't want to do anything that's going to harm the soil. So, yes, copper can be harmful to the soil. And uh, it's been proven in other regions of the world that you have used a lot of copper as a um, fungus control that they have, they have problems with their soil. So David and I, having that information, choose to not use a lot of copper in the vineyard. Um, it's perfectly fine to use it one, two, maybe three times a year. And that's why I love biodynamics, because... If you want to become certified biodynamic, you're only allowed to use copper a couple times a year. <clears throat> and so I really respect that, and I respect certain boundaries being put on farming practices. Something can be labeled sustainable or organic, um, but their overuse of something is, is always problematic. Right. We're really excited this year to be um, doing a trial on a, a new control for the, the fungus that, that copper will control, and that's called downy mildew, and it's an organically approved material. And there's some really, really great things coming our way um, from Europe, actually, that um, uh, the American Farming um, Society, you know, whatever, the farmers are trying to get a hold of now. And hopefully in the next few years, we're going to be able to have some or other organic materials that are actually biological controls or little critters uh, that um, little spores that you can mix with water. Keep us updated. I know this is kind yeah. of like a hot button topic right now, and and I'm glad that it's being discussed and debated. And uh, the, the the goal really is is to have healthy soil. And uh, and I, I, I'm kudos to you for 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 experimenting and, and continuing to kind of push the envelope and trying to do that. Well, I think what's interesting just with transparency is that, you know, conventional farming and industrialized farming can be done on a 20-acre scale, a 40-acre farm, right? A 40-acre farm can be industrially farmed, and that's where the real trouble is. But what's great about sustainable farmers and organic farmers and biodynamic farmers is that we're transparent and we want to engage. So one small little teeny tiny facet of something that we're trying to fix can get really overblown. Right. And, you know, let's let's concentrate on the big bad monsters out there. Yes. I'm part of the problem, overblowing <laughs> the copper sulfate issue. <laughs> it's no. all right. <laughs> um, no, but... Uh, on that note, let's taste some wine. <laughs> well, I brought you a beautiful new wine. 
Um, this is an unoaked Cabernet Franc. It is okay. so beautiful for the spring and summer, and we call it Mojo. Uh, mojo to us means purposeful and powerful. Um, any of the really great P words, and it is um, just something that is fabulous. Perhaps you can hear us pouring it right now. Yes, we are. This is not. It's not some uh, sound that Jack is kind of introduce it's actual wine being poured all right so this is juicy it's fruity um it's great served even a little chilled on a summer day and again it hasn't even been in oak at all so you're just tasting tasting beautiful fermented cabernet franc this is the chin the chin vineyards mojo cabernet franc 2014 mm-hmm. so brand new it's just it's rose petal it's violet mm. it's just something to have that is delicious. <laughs> Isn't it lovely? That is so delicious. Uh, Perfect for sitting outside here at Roberta's in the garden or having a nice little barbecue. I love the uh, high-tone aromatics. It's very aromatic. It's very juicy and lots of good acidity on the palate mm-hmm. uh, and complex. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just fruit. There's some floral notes. There's some earthy notes. And I like that you can also get... That level of complexity for a wine that is meant to kind of glug glug and you know, drink <laughs> it back. Glug glug. I love glug. that. Yes, that's exactly what, what mojo is for. And it is just flying out of the tasting room, even on a chilly spring like we're having now. So mm. I have a feeling that mojo will be just flowing this summer. That is absolutely delicious. I also want to give a shout out to your, um, your bed and breakfast. Oh, thank uh, you. Absolutely love it. Um, I stayed there uh, with my wine team last year. Uh, it was a total blast. Um, the The breakfast portion is extraordinary. Oh, good. Um, I know you guys both have a restaurant background, and um, you know you get to you have eggs from you know the local eggs and jams that you grew the fruit yourself and mm-hmm. bake the scones and it, it's just uh, a pretty special time a beautiful place to stay well i'm so glad you enjoyed it and uh i hope that more people will come and see us just because of you oh i, I hope so and tell us about visiting what's um are you guys still doing Saturday tours? Yeah, every Saturday and Sunday. I right. conduct a guided vineyard walk at one thirty, and David does the winery and barrel cellar tour at 2.30. We're open every single day of the week, uh, just about every single day of the year. And everyone should just come out to the North Fork of Long Island and come and see us and check out our honeybees and our chickens and our bed and breakfast and our 20 acres yeah. of grapes and the true love that is out there yeah. surrounding us. Forget the Hamptons and Montauk. Come to the North Fork. Exactly. It's uh, a lot of great food, farms, um, and you can visit uh, Barbara and her lovely wines. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to have it's you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, and check out uh, check out the Shinna State Vineyards wines, the whole lineup. Uh, but this mojo might be uh, might be my summer wine. It's delicious. <laughs> I'm so glad. Thank you so much. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much to uh, Jory Morales and uh, Jack Inslee. Uh, David, we missed you, uh, but we're thinking about you. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 